Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever. Interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hi, welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. We are going to radiate mindfulness today with Lynn Rossi. Hi, Lynn. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Now, first of all, you are located uh, west of Kansas City. Where are you? I'm in Columbia, Missouri. Oh, no. So you're in Columbia, Missouri. Totally yes. wrong. Fantastic. I love that you're hometown and uh, bringing mindfulness to Missouri. <clears throat> yeah, I've been bringing mindfulness to Missouri for a long time, before anybody knew what mindfulness was, actually. Yeah, yeah, how did you get into it? How did you even know about mindfulness being from the middle of Missouri? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think Columbia, Missouri is was a hotbed of mindfulness, if you can believe it. Really? Um, yeah, so when I was in graduate school, which was back in, oh gosh, um, the late 1990s, early 2000, um, I was searching for a deeper meditation practice. I was starting to practice meditation, but I wanted to find something to help me drop a little deeper into the practice and sure. into the place of stillness and silence. It was kind of something I was seeking. And it, I set an intention um, to have this happen, which I think intentions are extremely powerful. So be careful what you intend to do. Um, and within a month, yeah, within a month, I was introduced to John Kabat-Zinn's work um, out of the Center for Mindfulness in Boston. At the time, there had only been seven control group trial studies done on the mindfulness-based stress reduction program that he developed. So you know that's got to be a long time ago because there's hundreds, if not thousands, of studies now. Right. And then and I also got introduced to a local um, group called Show Me Dharma, which was a local Buddhist meditation center here. I and knew the, it. In yeah. And the, I'm sorry? In Colombia? Oh, sure. Yes. Oh, interesting. Now, I, I have to say, for those of you who may be watching or listening this pod, to this podcast, and you're not in the Kansas City area, Columbia, Missouri is in the middle of the state, and it's a college town. And yes. All of the things that a college town entails. So, right. also, meditation, mindfulness, who knew? 
Well, who knew? And so Jenny Morgan, who was one of the co-founders of Show Me Dharma, uh, was an amazing teacher. Unfortunately, she's not around anymore. But um, she started not only Show Me Dharma, but Mid-America Dharma, which I don't know if you're familiar with Mid-America Dharma, but they're a more regional kind of a larger uh, group that does um, brings meditation teachers to the Midwest. Um, in fact, you know, you can go on their, on their website and see their schedule for this year. Uh, wonderful teachers that are coming this year through, they, they organize retreats, like longer term retreats, yeah. residential retreats and non-residential retreats. And so all of that grew out of the work at Show Me Dharma, which I then started at Show Me Dharma, really trained a lot within the Buddhist tradition from the Theravadan tradition, and then also trained in the secular tradition with John Kabat-Zinn at the Center for Mindfulness. So I really have a strong foundation in both, right? And so I think that the understanding of the underlying teachings of mindfulness through the Buddhist tradition has really helped the mindfulness that I teach in a secular um, arena come more alive. Um, it's just, it's just you have a deeper understanding of mindfulness that then is sometimes taught in the more secular mindfulness um, programs. Right. Now, let me back up even further. Now, how did a girl from Columbia, Missouri get into Buddhism and meditation in the first place? Did you come from a background like that? I know that Missouri is known more or less for good or bad as the buckle of the Bible belt. <laughs> well, so I have kind of a interesting uh, story. I uh, was brought up here in, in Columbia and my parents were good Methodists and I was, I was brought up as a Methodist. Um, but I left uh, when I was 21. I moved out to California for 14 years. And I lived in San Francisco and then in L.A. And it was in L.A. that I really kind of bottomed out. You know, I had a lot of things that fell apart in my life and had the dark night of my soul, which really led me to come back to Columbia and to re-enroll in college Mm -hmm. and ultimately to get my uh, Ph.D. in psychology. Um, And so it was that spiritual kind of awakening that I had in L.A. that led me to come back to school to do the work that I do, that led me to mindfulness, that led me to the career that I've had been blessed to have over the last, you know, um, 18, 20 years uh, in this field. So, And I do love that you've got a Ph.D. in psychology because I think... I, I love that sweet spot that I call between science and meditation, between science and energy work, between science and all of the other things that I do and my group does. Mm-hmm. Um, because this, there are studies, thankfully, about meditation. And you truly understand what it does in our lives from a scientific perspective, from a brain perspective, from a psychology perspective. And I love yeah. it. Yeah, so that was one of the things um, that John Kabat-Zinn, I think, is really responsible for in large part, um, is that he was extremely interested in science and in in beginning to do the research on these mindfulness-based interventions so that they could be 
um, accessible to the general public and that people would accept them um, because there was scientific evidence. I mean, people that practiced uh, knew that they were helpful, but unless you have the science behind it, you know, it's really hard to um, kind of get it going in larger and larger, larger audiences. Oh, absolutely. And just within the past five, 10 years, this is this notion of mindfulness has really taken off. Aetna, the insurance company, right. yes. mindfulness and keeping people healthy. Um, yes. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm the meditation instructor at um, Hallmark Cards, the headquarters oh, in Kansas City, and yes. CVH headquarters in the North American headquarters in Olathe, Kansas. And wow. And so meditation and mindfulness is becoming more mainstream and more accessible and more um, something just as accepted as a, a given that is great for stress relief, that it's great for um, physical issues, great for emotional, mental issues. It's becoming more and more accepted. And you have taken this idea and concept of mindfulness and really run with it. So you've written a book. And so what I is have. <laughs> Yeah, tell, talk about that. Well, to talk about that, I think I need to back up a little bit because the book was, yeah, the book was really a culmination of the work that I'd done for many years. Mm -hmm. um, I worked for the University of Missouri for much of my career. Missouri, um, of course, in Columbia. Well, I was actually a system employee, which meant that I was over Columbia, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Rolla. Okay. Wonderful. And so we ran the wellness program for faculty and staff. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. wonderful. And my director, uh, who hired me because I did mindfulness-based interventions for stress mm -hmm. and other kinds of mindfulness-based interventions, came to me early on and said, well, I need you to help people who are struggling with food and their bodies. Uh, people, you know, because uh, the biggest health risk factors that we have are had at the university when we did survey, uh, were stress was the number one. Everybody was affected by stress practically. And then people um, being overweight are physically inactive. Um, and so she wanted me to address um, the issues around food and people being inactive through some kind of a program. Mainly she was worried about people who were uh, probably overeating. Um, so uh, I had no intention of doing this at the time, but when your director asks you to do something, you just say, okay, I'll figure that out, you know. Exactly. And um, so I kind of threw something together fairly quickly based on some of the research that I'd done about what was already out there, what I could pull from uh, fairly quickly, but I, I knew that anything that I did would have to have a strong mindfulness component mm -hmm. um, because in my work with mindfulness and in other people's work with mindfulness and the research on mindfulness, we can pretty much see that mindfulness is the key change component in so many of the interventions that are out there because mindfulness let's just give people a definition of mindfulness right i'm going to ask you for that if somebody has heard of it they know it's out there but they don't know what it is i was just going to ask you okay so i i like to use john kevitt zen's definition with a little addition and he says that it's paying attention in a particular way mm -hmm. on purpose so yes. there's your intentional component uh, in the present moment, 
Mm -hmm. right? So that's your attentional component. And then he said, without judgment. Yes. Yes. So I always like to say, if it's not with judgment, well, what is it with? And <laughs> I say it's with kindness and compassion. Right. If you do so that I would say alone, if you do that alone, just a few things with kindness and compassion, that's going to make huge changes in your life. So Correct. Go ahead. No, that's okay. So um, it's about befriending yourself and befriending your life and the things around you in any moment um, as the first step, right? Because if we're always struggling with our lives, with ourselves, we're so engaged in the struggle that we don't have time to do anything different. Right, right. right? Exactly. So when, we, when we're present without judgment, with kindness and compassion, and we see how things are, or we see how our thoughts are, or we see how others are, you know, with this different um, lens, then we're able to negotiate our lives better, no matter what it is that we're facing. So I knew that that I had seen, you know, of course, the changes in my own life in practicing mindfulness, but also the changes in hundreds of other people's lives that I taught at the at the university. So I knew mindfulness, we would have to learn, you know, mindfulness, I would teach mindfulness as a major part of the class. So I taught it for about three years. Um, and then after that, I kind of looked at how things were going, saw some of the issues that um, people were having with some of the concepts. And then I rewrote it um, and then did some research on it. Um, that's what's great about the university. I got a wonderful doctoral student from the counseling psychology program, and we put together a, her dissertation project, actually, um, on this program called Eat for Life. And... We found out that we had a control group and we had a, an experimental group, the group that went through um, the program. And the people that went through the program had significantly um, better outcomes, uh, particularly in the areas of, uh, they went from <clears throat> being kind of uh, symptomatic on a binge eating diagnosis scale. Sure. Um, so they went from being, you know, binging or overeating. It was kind of a scale that looked at binge eating on a continuum. So people might just have eaten more than they wanted to. So they became asymptomatic, which means that they didn't have those symptoms anymore. Oh, that's astounding. Yeah, that is astounding. Yeah. <laughs> and then they also uh, increased in body appreciation. That's a great side effect. Yes. So body appreciation actually is something that I teach in the class. And I think it's a very big component of the class. There's that compassion, kindness towards yourself. Yes. Um, there's the idea of viewing your body for its instrumental value as opposed to its ornamental value. Oh, yeah. That's great. Because right? we used to think that. of like, how cute am I, you know, or how thin am I, or how, am, you know, all of these things that Hollywood and advertising and, you know, corporations want you to think that you're not good enough. Even uh, the opposite. How am I not cute? And how am I not thin? And how exactly. those feelings of exactly. for the body. Absolutely. 
Well, so we don't want to view the body like that, right? So our bodies are miracles. Our bodies, our eyes can see most of us, right? Our ears can hear. Our mouth can taste this wonderful food that we're eating. Our legs walk us from place to place and our hands pick up anything that we need them to. And it's just, when you start thinking about all the things the body does, it's a miracle. It is a miracle, yes, yes. It's a miracle that we overlook every day. Right. Oh, and so I'm when sorry. I wake up in the morning, the first thing I, I do is like, wow, I woke up today. You know, <laughs> I don't do that every day. I'm lying. But, but I try to, right? I try to remember. I like to tell people every morning when you wake up, you have two miracles already. One and two. Yes, exactly. So I get people to start thinking about that and start to relate to their body in that way instead of, you know, some kind of idealized version of who we think we're supposed to be. You know, every body is wonderful, is a miracle. And, And so I help people. I really, it's part of the program. So it's not surprising to me that people improved on that because most people don't even think about it. Right. They don't. They really don't. We walk around asleep. Yes. Right. And we walk around just ignorant of our body and what what it's doing, what our mind is doing. Most people are just walking around ignorant of what's going on within them. Well, and then our thoughts are so conditioned. Mm -hmm. Yes. True. Our thoughts are so conditioned by advertising, by the media, by Hollywood, by our doctors. Yes. I mean, our doctors are even doing harm, you know, with these charts that put people on some kind of, in some kind of um, place where they say, well, you're this weight, so you must be unhealthy. We know that's not true. Yes. It depends on the... Okay. And so doctors need, we're trying to educate um, uh, the public, the doctors, the uh, the researchers, the clinicians who work in this area to not pathologize people on, because of a weight. Because there can be a thin person walk into a doctor's office who is un- more unhealthy than somebody who's in the overweight or obese category. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. and I had just seen a quote recently saying that you can eat the kale, you can drink the alkaline water, you can do the yoga. But if you're not dealing with the crap in your mind and in your heart, you're still unhealthy. Right, right. Yes, exactly. So, so the, that kind of whole, whole shift uh, to appreciating your body and not buying into those messages is a really big part. Because once you stop buying into those messages and start focusing on your well-being, um, right. then, then you're going to be healthier. Um, yeah. So the other thing that I measured was on a scale called intuitive eating, uh, which was developed by a woman, Tracy Tilka, who's done wonderful work in the area of body image. Um, And it's really intuitive eating is um, eating based on physical hunger cues. Yes. As opposed to emotional hunger cues. Right. Which we do a lot. Or even more cues. Oh, I'm sorry. Or even visual cues. You look at something that looks delicious and appetizing. Other people are eating, so you feel like you want to, too. Right. So that's called an environmental cue. Oh, I love it. Okay. Environmental yes. cues. Yeah. So people that that are intuitive eaters, 
cues according to this scale, eat based on physical hunger cues, my body's asking for food because it needs nourishment, yeah. right? Or it's empty versus I'm happy, sad, bored, stressed. Uh, there's food sitting around me, so I'm going to reach for it. Right. I'm sitting with my friends and they're eating and right. Right. So people increase significantly on the skill of intuitive eating. Yes. Oh, yeah. that they do. Yes. Because we and why we're eating. Well, yeah, because when, when you work with the, with uh, my basics of mindful eating, when, you know, we first start talking to people about mindful eating, the first thing you do when, before you reach for food is to ask yourself, am I hungry? Yeah. That makes am sense. I physically hungry? Mm-hmm. Right. And if I'm reaching for food and I'm not physically hungry, that's something to be explored. Yes, it is. Why am I reaching for the food? Right. right. Yeah, because we reach for food for a lot of reasons. And when we can begin to put that little wedge of mindfulness in between reaching for food and putting it into your mouth, if yes. you can stop and go, why am I reaching for this food? Am I physically hungry? Right. A lot or, of people eat out of boredom. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> now look how in sync we are. I know. We're so in sync. Yeah. So boredom is huge. I love this one. All right. I love this whole idea of boredom because when we bring our attention to anything, it stops being boring. Yes. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 I think boredom is a lack of stimulation. Yes. Or if you're tired of doing what you're doing and want to do something else. Yes. Okay. In a lack of stimulation, what you're yes. doing to be stimulating. Right. So there's a couple of things that one can do. First of all, you could develop the skill of just sitting and being. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Really hard for people. Right? Because they want something, because we've been so trained to have stimulation coming at us constantly. Oh, yes, constantly. We're conditioned. Which is, yeah, so which is why the mindfulness practice is so important, because it trains us to sit and breathe and just simply be for a moment. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, like, let's just do that right now. Let's just sit. Okay. We're going to sit. Everybody who's listening can just sit. Take a deep breath in. Put out a sigh. Just close your eyes for a moment and just check in with your body. Just notice how your body feels. Mm -hmm. Feeling the bottom and the cushion of the chair. Feeling the feet on the floor. The arms resting in your lap. Feel the breath within the body. When we check in, we can also notice what are we feeling? What are we thinking? And just visiting ourselves for a moment. Mm -hmm. We're usually so outwardly focused that we can go inside and just go, hey, hey, Lynn, how you doing? And then once you've done that, you can just be with the body and the breath sitting. Feel this amazing body that you're inhabiting. 
And no matter what it's feeling like in this moment, can you just hold it with a kind, compassionate attention? And then opening your eyes. It just doesn't have to take much longer than that. I mean, you can do it for longer, and I recommend that. But even just those moments of just like, oh, settling in, noticing, here I am. We don't visit ourselves often enough. We go visit other people. We go out and have coffee and lunch and tea and all these different things. But how often do you make a date with yourself? Oh, I love that. Yeah. You're the most important relationship you'll ever have. Is with the self, it is. With the self. And so how much time are you spending with it? And how you view yourself and treat yourself is often how you view and treat others as well. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then how others view and treat you is a yeah. how you view and treat yourself. Right. So we're still talking about the research. I'll go back there now. So the last thing that I found, I know I'm, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Uh, the last thing that we found with my research is that people did increase in the skill of mindfulness, which is what we just did. It's a muscle. And you, the more you practice it, the better, better you get at it. You know, yes. I people start with three minutes of mindful breathing or even one minute of mindful breathing, increase to three, then go to five. And then we're going to try to add the meditation aspect into it and just start small because it, it gets, it gets better and it gets easier. Absolutely. Just from doing it. So when I do presentations, I often have people do a little practice in the beginning, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the workshop, we'll do it again. And people are already more comfortable with it and more able to stay present. Because I think the first time people practice something like mindfulness, it feels a little odd and you don't know what to expect. And you're like, oh, what is this strange thing? And then you do it again and it's like, oh, okay, I get that. It's not anything too weird. It's just sitting, it's breathing. I do that all the time. I'm just bringing my attention to it. Um, so yeah, it, there's, a, there's a learning curve, but it's, you know, it goes fairly quickly. And then there's a lifetime of learning to do. I mean, the mindfulness practice teaches us that every moment is a new moment. So there's something new to discover. I'm a different person every moment of my life. I'm not the same as I was before I started this, you know, interview with you because we've had interactions with one another. Exactly. The new neural pathways, new memories, new associations. Right. Absolutely. And then physically, every cell in our body is constantly renewing and changing. So yeah. really not the same person. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I found all these um, um, significant improvements. Uh, oh, and all of the other improvements were moderated or mediated by the practice of mindfulness. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so when we increased mindfulness, we increased intuitive eating. When we increased mindfulness, we increased body appreciation. When we increased mindfulness, we didn't overeat as much. Yes. So I really liked that part of the, of the research. Right. So, because it just confirmed what I thought, which is that mindfulness is at the foundation of the program that I teach. Yeah. And I think that's striking for people participating in the program that they find that mindfulness really is at the basis of any type of improvement we want to make in our life. Yes. 
Yeah, because you're, you have more choice. When you're aware with kindness and compassion, you have choices that are not available with you when you're not paying attention, you're doing things on automatic, or you're mindlessly going through life. Or as one meditation teacher that I love said, you're having an accidental life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You want to have it on purpose, not yeah. by accident. You know, my, my tagline tag in my personal business is bring awareness to life. Because when yeah. you have that awareness, everything, you cannot have a positive outcome unless you have an awareness of it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so we then published the research in the American Journal of Health Promotion back in 2014, which was great. Um, and then I thought, well, gosh, you know, it would be great to get this program to a larger audience. Yeah. Um, and I really felt very good about the program. So I then um, wrote the book, The Mindfulness-Based Eating Solution, which covers a lot of the territory that's in my Eat for Life class. Yeah, good, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was published in 2016. Um, and um, it's been uh, doing very well. And um, I do, um, I, I'm also um, working as the president of the Center for Mindful Eating, which is a nonprofit organization, um, a worldwide nonprofit organization uh, that has its mission to train professionals to teach mindful eating, but it, it's also recently changed its, its mission to also help educate the, the general public, the non-professional audience, because right. we have so many people coming to our website that we decided we needed to try and um, meet the needs of that audience as well. Okay, so what are you doing to meet the needs of that audience? Well, we just finished in January, we just finished with a whole mindful World Mindful Eating Month, um, which got a lot of attention. And so um, we started Mindful Eating Day as January 24th, a long time, uh, a few years ago. And then we've started this whole monthly um the month of January uh, has become our mindful eating month. And so we get a lot of people interested at that time. And then we have webinars that people can watch. We have a quarterly newsletter that's written by our board members and other people that are mindful eating experts. Um, so we have, a, we have a lot of resources on the website that people can um, access um, at, at the Center for Mindful Eating. It's just, tcme.org um, so that's available and you know we're still working at um, revising our website so that it's more clear about where professionals go and where the general public goes but there's a lot of overlap on the material that people can access um, so if they just want to go there and browse it you know browse the website there's a lot of things there good um, now I was wondering is there anything about mindful eating in your program beyond just being mindful of why you eat? Yes. Yes. So my program uh, in particular, okay, I, I'm aware of a lot of the other programs that are there, but I really um, break down each week to address a different aspect of ourselves. Ooh. I don't think that we do mind, I don't think that we eat in a vacuum. No, we don't. 
is like, okay, I'm just, this is me eating, right? No, right. you bring your whole self to the dinner table. You do, right. And friends or family. Yes. And you bring your habits and you bring your patterns and you bring your thoughts and you bring all of these emotions to the dinner table. And so if we don't deal with the whole person, yeah. then we're not really, I don't think we're doing people a service. So in my program, we start out with, of course, eating. And I teach what I call the basics of mindful eating as a kind of a touchstone for people to be able to um, use that throughout the 10 weeks of the class and beyond um, when they sit down to eat. And we can talk about that in a minute. But um, then in the second week, I, we, we you know pay attention to what is hunger and how do you feel hunger and how do you feel satisfaction and satiety, those kinds of things. But then we quickly move into um, some of the common difficulties that people face. Um, so I have what I call my three food wisdoms, which talks about there's no forbidden food, mm, okay. which is a very challenging concept for people to understand. Yeah. No forbidden food does not mean that you eat everything that you want all of the time and as much as you want, um, because that's not really mindful eating, right? Right. But that's what people would hear. So I, I added two other food wisdoms. So if you forbid something, you're going to want to eat it. Yes. Absolutely. So we know that craving arises not, not because of the content of food, but because of the, um, um, what's the word I'm trying to use? It's not because of the content of food, but it's when we restrict food. Yes, absolutely. Because the content of the food, I mean, we're, the, the food is not necessarily present, but we're craving it anyway. And so I think yeah. it's the idea perhaps of the food. Well, and it's like it's the idea that I shouldn't have that food. Yes. I shouldn't have it. It's restricted. I'm bad. It's bad food, right? We want to get rid of the bad and good, right? Yeah. Let me give you an example. I'm gluten intolerant. I makes me ill. And yet I really, the one thing I can do without it, and I know it makes me sick, but the one thing is like um, white wedding cake. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> but you know, any, yeah so anytime we forbid ourselves something yes. we want it yes and people often put the focus on what they can't have right as opposed to what they can have yes right right so um this works so i'll just talk about for people in general uh when we give up the forbidden food and to say i can have whatever i want but then the second food wisdom is how much of this food is the right amount that's an excellent question here in america yes the place yeah. the land of huge portion sizes exactly yeah or i like to say how much of a pan of brownies is the right amount you know? <laughs> It's not the whole pan, you know, it may not even, it may not even be a whole brownie. I mean, those are so rich, right? When we slow down and we take one bite of brownie and really pay attention, yes, your satisfaction with that one bite will be more than if you'd eaten the whole pan without paying attention. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is, yes. <laughs> yes. I think that's a brilliant way to put it. Yeah. 
Yes. Because I do chocolate eating exercise in my workshops. Uh, oftentimes when I go around to businesses and, you know, different places and give workshops on mindful eating, I always, I usually do a chocolate exercise. And so it's kind of funny because what happens is sometimes invariably um, people will come up to get their piece of chocolate and I have different kinds that they can choose from and someone will take it and throw it in their mouth and it'll be gone before they even get back to their seat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so now I always warn people, now don't, don't eat it first. You're going to go back to your seat. We're going to eat it together. But I've had people do that. And then when I say, well, get another piece because, you know, you'll need one for the exercise. And so they'll do the exercise by, you know, really looking at the chocolate, smelling the chocolate, um, seeing if, if it's appealing, taking one bite, closing your eyes, letting it melt in your mouth, move it around, notice the different tastes. And when they do it like that, people say, oh my gosh, the one that we tasted mindfully was so rich and so full and so satisfying. And the one I just threw in my mouth, I didn't even taste it. No, it wasn't even, it was a speed bump. It was just a blip. <laughs> I love that. It was a speed bump. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, anyway, so paying attention to what is the right amount of food is really important. And then the third food wisdom is to ask yourself, what are my patterns and what are my triggers with food? Because as we're introducing previously forbidden foods, and I ask people to do this just a little bit at a time, we don't want to set ourselves up to fail, right? And so if you've forbidden yourself something for a long time and you're afraid to have it in your house, you don't have to bring a whole package of it home. So for instance, if, you're a, if, you, if, you're, if you know you overeat on ice cream, Yes. Don't bring home a gallon of ice cream. Right. It's going to be there and it's going to be calling your name. Yeah. And so until you build up the skill of mindful eating and, and until you feel comfortable, eventually you will be comfortable bringing it home and you'll probably even forget about it most of the time. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, go to the ice cream store, the parlor, whatever they're called, and have a cup of ice cream. Yes. Once and taste it there, don't take any home, and you've had your ice cream experience. Yes. Yeah, so, and also other patterns are that people eat when they're distracted, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to eat this type of food in particular when you're distracted. Um, eating when you're distracted in general is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're, you know, reading or watching TV or on the computer or all these things that we often do, uh, driving in the car, you know, <laughs> people eat at a lot of different times. I mean, I forget the percentage, but a lot of people eat in their car, you know, when they're driving from place to place. Yeah, I did that just this morning. <laughs> I had my granola and almond milk in the car. Yeah. Right. Right. When I had to go to an office, I would do that sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually could take more time to eat when I was driving to work than I would have given myself if I would have scarfed it down at home. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we want to be flexible with these things. I'm, I'm all about flexibility. I'm also a yoga teacher, right? So right. flexibility is something I'm very encouraging of people to do. It's a spectrum. It's a scale. You do as 
well as you can with what you've got given the time allotted. Don't stress about it. Exactly. Do what you can. Yeah. So there, so those are the three. So no forbidden food. What's the right amount? Mm-hmm. Keep exploring that. And then what are your patterns and triggers with food? So this is something that we do in the third week. And then we look more closely at what are people's thoughts? We have a lot of cognitive distortions. And so I ask people to use, I teach people to use mindfulness to examine their thought patterns and to see which ones are creating suffering, see which ones, and to really realize that our thoughts aren't facts. You know, our thoughts are just conditioned ideas that we've been trained ourselves to believe. Mm -hmm. And so we, we go through that week and then we get to the kind of the rubber hits the road week, which is mindfulness of emotions. Yes, that's important. Yes, so important. So this is really, I could do just a whole 10-week program on mindfulness of emotions, um, and we weave it in throughout the class, but that's such an important skill. I think of all of the things that mindfulness has taught me, it's how to be with the difficulties in my life Mm -hmm. and survive them, you know, without being too scathed. Um, And it, it brings resilience to our lives. It teaches us that just because we've had an unpleasant experience, an unpleasant moment, an unpleasant emotion, that that doesn't mean something has gone wrong or that I am wrong. It simply means I'm having an uncomfortable experience like every other human being that's alive. Oh, absolutely. I think that is so important. In every challenge, we have a blessing. We have an opportunity to learn. I mean, you look at movies and books nothing ever goes completely smoothly because there would be no story. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You've got to have a story. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's it's unfortunate that we don't teach kids or we are starting to, but most of us have never been taught how to deal with our emotions. Right. We haven't. Nobody. I never got a course in school that said it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be lone, feel lonely. It's okay to be sad. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just talking to somebody. I taught yoga. I teach yoga a couple of times a week at Alley Cat here in Columbia. And um, there was a woman at the end of yoga in Savasana, which is the corpse pose. In, in oh, I call it the reward at the end. <laughs> The reward at the end yes. and you know she was sobbing and so I you know and that happens sometimes yes. right when you're in this kind of relaxed state and you're open and you're vulnerable actually we had done a lot of heart opening exercises oh, great. I just thought about that right I did a lot of heart openers like the sphinx and the camel and you know different things and so she was you know crying a little bit and trying to hold it back a little bit but so I went and talked to her afterwards and I said, you know, it's okay to cry. It's like it's it's like it's what needs to happen. So don't feel embarrassed. You know, it's it's a natural part of experiencing things that are sad and difficult. Um, and that's the message that we need to give our children. That's the message that we need to give ourselves. Is like nothing's gone wrong. It's just uncomfortable. You know, it's it's like disappointment happens. Disappointment is part of our lives. And so just being able to sit with it and feel it directly, not pushing it away, not reaching for food to make it, you know, to try to cover it up, 
or, or anything else of, you know, all our other strategies of busyness. I know mine tends to be shopping. Uh, you know, it's like, I find myself wanting to go downtown and go to the shoe store, you know, or something. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I can see that with mindfulness, I can see that arise when I, when I get the urge to, to go down to the shoe store, I know that something's going on. And so I just stop and I go, hmm, I wonder what it is I'm really needing here right now. Is right? it another pair of <laughs> And I'm happy to say I didn't buy any boots all winter long. So I'm very happy. I'm very pleased with myself. I think that's progress. Um, so I didn't need any, you know, it's like, I didn't need boots. I, I, you know, the, the desire, that craving for something pleasant, uh, happens with food, happens with shoes, happens with all kinds of things. But so if you reach for food and you're like, mm, I'm not really hungry. I wonder what I'm really, really, really hungry for. Right. Well, and if you think about our culture, we treat food as rewards. We treat food as uh, bribery. If you eat mm -hmm. your dinner, you can have dessert. Right. So we, we use food in these other ways that are not simply nourishing and giving our bodies fuel. Right. Yes. Right. right. And so the, I think that needs to change. Mm -hmm. Well, so it takes a little bit more time and a little bit more effort to ask yourself, yeah, to ask yourself what you're really, really, really hungry for. Because you could be hungry for movement. You could be hungry for water. You could be hungry for connection with another person. You could be hungry for rest. You know, we don't give ourselves enough downtime. We don't give ourselves enough breaks during our day. Just short little breaks to help us kind of reboot, you know, our brains and our bodies. Uh, you may be hungry for, gosh, you know, all kinds of different things besides food, and it takes a little bit longer, but you will actually satisfy the hunger that you're hungry for, and then you won't reach for food and then regret it and then still have the need um, still there because you haven't really met the need. And you're going to, that's going to increase your well being considerably. Yes, it will. Um because we just have this connection with food that as something, as reward, as celebration, as you go to a birthday party, you need to have a piece of cake and ice cream, right? So um, it's these things, these associations, like I can be at the celebration, I can be at the party and celebrate my friend, but maybe I'll take a bite of cake mm -hmm. or I help pass it out and I can participate that way, but I'm not really hungry. Right. Yeah, and so a big place that it's a problem is at workplaces, right? Oh, because there's so much food around. So um, we're having a, an issue of the our food for thought at the Center for Mindful Eating is going to be, I think it's in April, um, is going to be about mindful eating at work um, and about all the pitfalls that we have at work to eat the wrong kinds of foods that don't really bring us energy or bring us health and well-being. Um, and again, I don't want to set up one food is good and one food is bad, but we know that we just don't feel good when we eat too much sugar and fat, right? And so having it in smaller doses, you can still have it, by all means have it, but um, 
you know, how do you feel if you eat too much of it? You know, you need to pay attention to that and let your body be your guide. Mm -hmm. So as people go down this path, one of the things that happens is they realize they don't like uh, a lot of the food that they've currently been eating. Yes, yes. That, that always happens. Mm -hmm. People, when they taste things mindfully, discover that the food, if they've been eating more highly processed foods, um, they will discover they don't really like them. Yeah. And, that, and we know, yeah. And so we all know from research, I'm sorry? Oh, no. It's just that many of these processed foods don't even have food in them. Right, exactly. I call it a food-like substance. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so there's been actually some research that showed that the more mindful you are, the, the healthier food choices that you make. You prefer healthier food. Yeah, because you're tasting it. You're realizing, oh, well, whole food tastes better and makes my body feel better and when you aren't trying to fix yourself with food but you're trying to bring well-being into your life um i have a friend of mine who said that you know no amount of uh, this is health tastes better than you know any any food could ever taste right? health tastes good in my body and I, you know it, it just it's it feels good to feel healthy it, i mean not this morning i mean i can feel the breakfast that i had energizing my body stabilizing my body um helping my body to feel stable so that i can meet all of the you know challenges that i have in my day absolutely, absolutely. and if eating something different i might not a, something more processed, I probably wouldn't feel this way right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you listen to your body, your body craves things that makes it healthy. Mm -hmm. Right. Your body knows what it needs to be healthy and will let you know. Like I've, I'm a firm believer that if you're, um, if your body needs potassium, you crave bananas. If you, um, you know, need more something in your life, then your body will crave that. So the one thing that you have to be careful of, though, is that there's a difference between what your body is telling you or your belly or your, you know, the, the whole body that you have, or um, are you listening to the thoughts in your head or to, um, so a lot of people tell me, it tastes so good I can't quit eating, mm. right? Right, right. That's a common statement that people make to me. So what we begin to look at is, first of all, when you can have whatever you want, whenever you want it, you don't have to have it all now. You don't, absolutely. And when you deeply know that, you can eat the appropriate amount for your body now and it can taste really wonderful, but you don't have to overeat it because you know the next meal that you have, if you take the time to pick food that you really enjoy, can be just a good, as good of an experience. Yes. And the next meal. So you're not always just trying to, you know, have all of your pleasure now because you're never going to get it again. That's not true. 
You can have it whenever you want to have pleasure. And for, you know, people that practice mindfulness, they discover that more and more it's the healthier, less processed foods, the foods that are in season that have more nutritional value are the ones that both taste better to your taste buds mm -hmm. and feel better to your body. They do. Yes, they do. But you, we have a lot of conditioning around wanting, wanting pleasure, uh, wanting more pleasure. And that if you are looking to food for all of your pleasure, mm -hmm. so here's, a, here's the catch. If you're looking to food too much for all of your pleasure in life, mm -hmm. then that can get you into an unhappy pattern with food. So I really encourage people to build up their emotional bank account with activities and um, things that they do in their lives that bring them meaning and joy and pleasure that are just for them. I love it. I love yeah. It. Well, Lynn, we're just about out of time. Um, so we could go on forever and ever. <laughs> I would love to. If I didn't have a client in the next few minutes, we would be going on. But uh, so with, the the time we have remaining what would you hope is the biggest takeaway mm -hmm. well i do believe that anybody can reduce the suffering that they have around food in their bodies through the practice of mindfulness mm -hmm. um and i think that for everybody whether you have an issue with food or your body or not practicing daily uh, learning to be with yourself with kindness and compassion through a mindfulness practice um, is really, um, I highly recommend it. That's my biggest recommendation. That's my biggest thing I would like to encourage everyone to do. And if you're already having a regular meditation practice, great. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, your book is the Mindful ba Mindfulness-Based Eating Program. Your Solution. So, okay, yes, mindfulness-based eating solution. And then right. your program is called, again? Eat for, Eat for Life. Eat. And you can find all the information about me and my programs in my book on lynnrossi.com. Um, so it's Rossi with a Y. Yes, L-Y-N-N, two N's, R-O-S-S-Y.com. Yeah. Linda. And I have meditations on there as well. So if you want to practice mindfulness um, with me, um, I've got meditations and yoga for free. Download, uh, use them. They're from they're the meditations that I use in all my classes. So that's an accessible resource for people. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it that there's so much information on your website. So yeah, anybody who wants to get more information, listen to those meditations, download them. Do some yoga with Lynn. It's all on the website, lynnrossi.com. Oh, thank you so much, Lynn, for doing this today. I really appreciate yes, it. Yes, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been fun. Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com.
We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.